As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. You learn through your failures and you really do. You just got to put your neck out there and just go for it. There's sitting back and trying to study that stuff. You can't understand it from a book. You got to just live it and got to do it. Best ever listeners, do you want to make more money on your real estate projects? Well, I'm guessing that I'm hearing you say, oh yeah, baby. (laughs) Well, guess what, my friends? Today's best ever sponsor, Fund That Flip, is working with well, one of our previous best ever guests who has the most po- one of the most popular episodes, Jay Scott. If you aren't familiar with this episode, then go check that out, episode 217. If you are because you're a loyal best ever listener, then you know that he knows how the heck to both analyze deals, especially flips, how to optimize the profits on those flips and how to look at the market. Because of that, Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has worked with him and put together a guide that is the seven tips to increase your real estate profits in today's market. Go check that out, go get that guide. I've read through it myself. I've learned a lot of things from it, from how to analyze the market cycles, as well as how to optimize profits and not lose money or mitigate your risk for losing money on your deals, go check it out, fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. That's F-U-N-D-T-H-A-T-F-L-I-P.com forward slash best ever. You're going to learn the tools to better understand your local market and position your business for success. You're gonna know how to analyze the real estate cycle and how to use short-term investing to capitalize on the market cycle and seven concrete actionable tips to make more money on your deals. Fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, hello. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. You are listening to the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. We've interviewed Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and many other best ever guests. And with us today, we've got... An active real estate investor. How you doing, Greg Bilbro? Hey, Joe. I'm doing great. I, I just actually got back in from out of town, my 20-year high school reunion this weekend. So uh, just kind of recovering from that. 
Well, welcome back and glad that you made it back so we can have our conversation. Hope that went well and you enjoyed catching up with all your high school friends or people you knew in high school. And a little bit about Greg and then he'll get into it more detail. He is a managing member at Fair Property Buyers, which is a real estate investment firm based in Scottsdale, Arizona. He's a licensed and active real estate investor for over 10 years. He specializes in fix and flips, fix and holds, as well as he's done other construction and development projects. And he's based, as I mentioned, in Scottsdale, Arizona. And you can say hi to him at his website, fliptracking.com, which is also in the show notes page. So you can just click that link. With that being said, Greg, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your focus right now? Yeah, sure. Happy to. And I'm very appreciative to be talking to you and the best ever listeners. So thank you for that invite. Born in Texas, went to college, got a degree in biochemistry because I thought I was going to go into medical school. And that was kind of the only route to go back then. Ended up defecting. Uh, All my friends did go into medical school. I went into business. And at 22, I actually became a Series 7 licensed stockbroker basically through all my 20s, I think 22 to 29. And I worked for a big Fortune 100 company, uh, kind of as a peon or a low man on a totem pole for a while. But I actually bought a fourplex when I was 23. It's the first piece of real estate I ever bought. And I'm so glad I did it. And so I kind of had a full-time day job and was working on a fourplex and being my own manager. I remember I only had $5,100 to my name. Like in all my money put in one pile would have been $5,100. And the down payment was 3900 bucks. So I had like about $1,000 of wiggle room or else I couldn't eat. <laughs> and so that, mm-hmm. was, uh, that was certainly just something I'll never forget. I remember it's like I had to make it work or else no eating. So I did that, but then I bought a primary residence, then I bought another fourplex. At the time, I think I was 25. Then a year later, I bought some land, I think 15 acres, and subdivided it, bought another house, and then started building a spec home, or not really a spec home, a custom home for myself. So during the whole time I was at my firm, I was kind of doing real estate as best I could on nights and weekends. And so by 27 or 8, I had about $2.3 million worth of real estate. And the big mistake that I made, and I'm sure other people can relate, is I had as much leverage on all of those properties as one could imagine. But I thought I was a big deal. I thought I knew what I was doing. I saw the portfolio growing. I saw income happening. And at my the ripe old age of 20-something, I just thought I was set. A couple years later, as you can imagine, it was 7, 08, 09. Some things changed, and I no longer had that much real estate. <laughs> Did you lose all of it? I lost all of it. I think I actually sold maybe two properties and did get some money out of it. I sold both fourplexes and the custom home. Everything else was short sale and foreclosure. Fantastic learning lesson. It's probably the single best thing that did happen to me. I know that people say that you learn through your failures and you really do. You just got to put your neck out there and just go for it. Sitting back and trying to study that stuff, you can't understand it from a book. You got to just live it and got to do it. But I ended up leaving the financial services industry and being a stockbroker and financial planner. And then I went full-time in the real estate in 08, I believe. And uh, right then and there, started working on fix and flips. And a couple years later, got into wholesale. And to answer your question that you'd asked, what am I doing now? Mostly fix and flip wholesale and uh, building a piece of software for the fix and flip community. Okay. Why did you leave your job in 08 when you were losing all your properties? Seems like you'd want to keep your job for some income. It certainly makes some sense. Well, first and foremost is I actually got fired. The boss had hired me, 
and said, hey, you're the future. The boss was 60-something, had just finished cancer. He said, I'm going to retire. I'm going to sell this business to you on terms. You're going to come work for me for five years. I'm going to teach you the ropes, and then you're going to take over the firm. And it's a big firm, 150 brokers on the floor, many, many millions of dollars as far as the CEO's income. And I was 27 or 8 when I was approached with that opportunity. So he said, work for me for five years, and we'll transition you in. I said, let's do it. I ended up moving from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Phoenix because that's where it was located, which is where I live now. I moved to Scottsdale. And six months after I moved here, he fired me. He fired, I think, two other similar type managers, one in Vegas and one in San Diego. And I'm not sure what was going on, but it, clearly he was kind of cleaning house. And I think what they told me was he's getting the company prepared to sell. When you're going to sell a company, you obviously try to get rid of all the big expensive parts so that the numbers look fat. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he did. Mm-hmm. I had no choice. My background was still real estate. I had been doing it and making money, and I enjoyed it. I actually always liked real estate more than being a broker. The financial services industry, I, I certainly wouldn't talk bad about it because there's some fake, great people and great uh, companies. But it is a pressure sale where you sell things to people sometimes when it's not the most appropriate thing to sell. And that was just kind of the industry. It wasn't even just my company. It was everybody. So uh, it's just not something that, that really sat well with me. How old were you in 2008? I was 30. 30 years old. Were you married? Any relationship or kids or anything? No, no kids, no wife, no engagement or anything that okay. stuff. I've always had dogs. I'm a dog guy. And at 30, I think that was probably right around where I went from having money and resource to truly nothing. I mean, I remember one time I couldn't even afford a gym membership, and I'm a gym rat. And so the only thing I could do was go run outside and do push-ups because those happened to be free. And that was humbling. <laughs> that was really a hard time because I'd been in a nice gym my whole life, and now that was just not – that was a luxury. I couldn't afford it. Mm. At what point did you realize that the sky was falling and you needed to just bail and your lifestyle was going to be drastically changed? Well, the answer is way too late. And now that I understand what a bubble looks like and I understand some of the sort of ignorance that occurs prior to a bubble, and I also understand things like leverage debt and leverage positions and how one should be or shouldn't be, I get it now, and I'm not saying I can predict the next one, but man, if what I know now, there's no way I would have become insolvent or lost all those properties back, you know, 2007, 8, 9. It's just so stupid. The, the behavior and the thinking was just so ignorant, and so now I've seen it. But when I knew I was kind of in a hard time, I had already lost one property that I bought in the mountains back in Albuquerque, New Mexico, sitting on the 15 acres. I think I lost that to foreclosure. It wasn't a big deal. It was just a rental. But getting income was tough, and as you know, everything here in Phoenix, the real estate values were being cut in half over the course of about 36 months. So the ability to buy, fix, and sell, you're selling into a nosedive. And so the ability to buy a piece of real estate that's low enough, renovate it efficiently enough, and then still exit in a time frame that makes sense, that stuff just became really, really hard. It's not that it was impossible, and I still did do some. But, man, it was just really tough. What do you look for now in terms of leveraging debt and your position within that? Well, I tell you what. I'm a cash guy. I have zero debt now. I'll probably have zero or close to zero debt for the rest of my life. There's just no need to spend money that you don't have. I very much understand the concept of good debt and the ability to take tax deductions. I get that. 
and I wouldn't even say anybody who's using that is doing something wrong. It's just right now, it's not for me. I buy everything in cash. I think being in a cash position is the way to go. I know one guy who's in commercial real estate, and everybody knows commercial real estate got crushed during the downturn as well. One guy who owns a firm here, he said the highest leverage that ever been is 50%. And so back in 06, 07, 08, 09, they were 50% on all of their buildings, and they own a bunch of buildings. They lost zero buildings. They missed zero payments. They were solvent the whole time. Sure, it got skinny. Sure, it got hard. Sure, they couldn't go on the fancy private vacations with their family, but their portfolio wasn't touched at all. And they thought that 50% leverage position, that was just how the family did it. It's just how they do it. It's their rule. And when I talked to him about that, after the fact, after I'd lost everything, I just thought, man, that makes a whole lot of sense. So I don't know what the right answer is for anybody. For me right now, it's zero. I couldn't ever see myself getting above 50% of leverage on something. What's your best real estate investing advice ever? Man, that is a fantastic question. I'm sure the best ever listeners could benefit from that. Um, You know, this is a business, it's really an apprenticeship business. There are smart people and producers and people who know how to do everything in this industry. I would go find that person and saddle right up next to them and say, what can I do for you? I'll sweep the floor, so to speak. I'll get you coffee, so to speak. I mean, whatever you want me to do, I'm there. I'll do it. I'll do it for free. I don't want any money. I just want as much education as I possibly can get. There are people that know how to solve basically every problem in real estate. I know how to solve a bunch of them, certainly not all of them. And I still today make phone calls to some of my competitors because I'm actually friends with pretty much all my competitors. And I'll call them when I come across a tricky situation and ask them how they would approach it. And a lot of times my competitors will just help me. They'll just say, here, here you go. This is what I would do. Other times I go to them bearing gifts and I'll say, look, I'll split this deal with you. This little piece is tricky. I don't really know how to look at this. Sometimes it's construction related. Sometimes it's uh, creative finance related. Those are areas that I know decently, but not the complicated versions of those. So sometimes I'll go to some of those other guys and ask them how to do it. And a lot of times these other guys are specialists. They've been doing it for 10 years and it's all they do. So they know it inside and out. It's follow the leader mentality. Just go find who's successful and do whatever you can to create or add value to those people. And I know it's tough. Everybody's got a job and kids and wives and all those other things. I get it. But it's just how bad do you want it? You know, you can make those excuses and and act too busy or you can just buckle down and go find time to make it happen. And it's certainly just going to be a sacrifice, but it's well worth it. Mm You ready for the best ever lightning round? (laughs) Absolutely. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, Matt Bowles, who was a guest on episode 289. His company, Maverick Investor Group, has a special report just for you on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes in real estate that investors make in the 2016 boom cycle. Get yours free at maverickinvestorgroup.com forward slash best ever. That's M-A-V-E-R-I-C-K investorgroup.com forward slash best ever. Best ever book you've read? Um, well, I'm going to answer probably two books. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill is a game changer, at least from where I came from. Cashflow Quadrants by Robert Kiyosaki is a game changer. Think and Grow Rich is a game changer. Now, I've... 200 books, I think, in my library, but those three things, those just really stick out. It's paradigm shift type books. Best ever personal growth experience, and what'd you learn from it? Losing everything. No doubt about that. That's an easy one. 
when you are built on a false set of cards, or what is it, a house of cards, mm-hmm. you think you know what's going on, and it's just not the case. And so when you go through some defaults and some pressure, you learn how the other side of the world works. There's a reason why banks have all the big buildings downtown with their name on it. They sell debt. And the more debt you have, the more of a precarious situation you're in. So going through that whole debacle, best thing that could ever happen to me, I mean, I can't predict the future, but I just couldn't see how I'm ever going to put myself in that position again. Best ever deal you've done? (laughs) There was a deal about a year ago. I got a call. I think his name was Randy. And he had a rental house in Gilbert, a nice rental house, like 3,200 square feet, built in 2012. Had fantastic tenants in there. The tenants had bruised credit, but they had a good job, good income, good kids. The house was immaculate. This gentleman who owned it as a rental was being relocated out of state for his job. And so he just needed a quick cash buy sale. He called me, and I just don't know why he did. He shouldn't have, but he did. We made a deal, I think, for $366,000. So I went and walked it. The house was perfect. The neighborhood's perfect. We bought it for $366,000, I think. We made an offer that day. We were in escrow the next day, and we probably closed 10 days later. As soon as we did that, the very next thing we did is go approach the tenants and see if they could qualify. I get them with my lender. My lender is brilliant. He can make magic happen. And he was able to fix the bruised credit issue. And we actually sold it inside 30 days for $475,000. So it was a $110,000 flip with no construction inside 30 days. Those are unicorns. They happen, they're out there, but certainly rare. How did he find you? You said you have no idea, but if you had to guess why he called you. I don't know why he called me. The owner was a smart man. He built multi-million dollar commercial kitchens for restaurants, and he was like a top national sales guy, so certainly no dummy. Probably has a dozen realtor friends in his back pocket, and so who knows what he was doing. He just wanted to sell and move, and maybe his new job across the United States was just so good that tripping over uh, dollars to pick up pennies or whatever that saying is didn't matter to him. But we have a bunch of online marketing. We're an online marketing expert. In fact, I brought an online marketing specialist in-house about three years ago. That guy, he's now my business partner, he owns his own online marketing full-service digital firm. Doesn't know much about real estate, knows a ton about online and digital marketing, things like filters and marketing automation, etc. So he and I had built what I would say is probably the best marketing plan I've ever seen, and it seems to work. So our online marketing found that motivated seller, or he found us and brought him to us, and I got the call. What's the best ever way you like to give back? We thought about this as a company, and we haven't yet done it, but I will tell you, and this is interesting, nobody knows this. You're the only person that knows this except for the coordinator. I went to high school 20 years ago, and we all started the same. And this last weekend, Saturday, was my 20-year high school reunion. And I ended up buying $1,000 worth of tickets. I think the tickets were like $75 a piece. But I bought $1,000 worth of tickets. And I told the lady who was coordinating them to find the other people who really did want to go to the reunion but didn't have the money to do it. I said, just hand them out for free and make sure they don't know where it came from. Just call them and say, congratulations, there's a free ticket. Here you go. What's interesting is... I knew real well about half of them. Like they were friends of mine back in the day. And so when I was at the reunion, I was like having a drink and talking with them, realizing they were there not knowing that I bought their ticket. It's one of the neatest feelings I've ever had. Hmm. I like that. It's a a cool story. We've talked about this a couple times perhaps, so you can say, talk about it. But what's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? 
Well, obviously the default's a big one, but you know, knowing your ARV after repair value, the entire six and foot business model basically starts at that number. And if you get that number a dollar wrong, you're already off course, just like the ship. You know, if you're driving a ship and you're half a degree off and you go across the ocean, you end on a different continent. And it's the same thing here. Our you just got to know it. The other thing I'll tell you is construction, I just don't really think people understand how complex construction is. There are good construction groups in town and good flippers in town who have that stuff down to a science. But people think it's just paint and carpet at Home Depot. And that is just not the case. This stuff is complicated and the rules and the regulators are out there. And so blowing your construction budget is so easy to do. You can say you're going to put 50K in your house. And I mean, you sneeze once and you'll put 65 in that house. Sometimes it's just you couldn't have known that it needed that other 15K because the issue or the problem wasn't visible when you bought the house and didn't even exist when you bought the house. And so things changed. I mean, I remember when we were building that custom house, we spent, I don't know, however much money it was, 7K on an HVAC system. And by the time, nine months later, when we were ready to install it, we had to spend nearly double because the SEER rating and rules changed. And so my contractor had to comply with the rules. We couldn't have known that the rules were going to change and the code was going to change based off of the SEER rating. And it's just one of those things. It's not like you can't install an HVAC system. So those things happen. Construction is much more challenging than I think what people give it credit for. I love wholesale. Wholesale takes the construction component out of the business model. You get to not be good at construction and still flip houses. Mm -hmm. And so we do a fair amount of wholesale because of that. And we leave the more complicated rehabs to our listed cash buyers who are experts. Yeah, I agree. If I did focus on single family homes, there's absolutely no way I would be a fix and flipper. One, because it's not my skill set at all. But two, even if it were my skill set, the risk versus reward is not there, in my opinion, and this is after interviewing a bunch of people, it really is in the wholesaling because you are out of pocket like dollars and you have the potential and you really just need to focus on your marketing and connecting the motivated sellers with the buyers. Well, and let me touch on one other thing that goes right in tail with that. I believe this business is starting to go right towards spreadsheets and data analysis and data engineers. I mean, back in the day, you used to be able to walk in the neighborhood and shake hands with a handful of neighbors, and you would know what you're doing. But today, there are truly engineering experts behind some of these firms. So we're building a company called FlipTracking.com, which is aggregating all the fix-and-flip data that exists. And we're understanding all the fix-and-flip data so we can see where profit is being created. Just like the movie Jerry Maguire, where he talks about show me the money. Flip tracking actually shows you the flip money. When people make money by a flip, we actually store and aggregate that profit dollar. And now you're able to compare, let's say, one zip code versus another. So is 85260 North Scottsdale better than 85251 Old Town Scottsdale? Nobody knows, right? It's people guessing. It's anecdotal at best. What about this? What's better, Denver or Austin? Nobody knows that answer either. So flip tracking is aggregating all that data so that we can study it and understand where profit is or isn't being made so we can ex exploit the softer areas. When you ask about making a mistake, one of the things we've done for years until I got just a little bit more wise about the business is just understanding pockets. And it's different than understanding neighborhoods. It's just different. It's where does the business model survive, not what neighborhood is doing well. Because there's a difference between an increasing neighborhood and a neighborhood that you can flip and make profit. Those are two different things. And it's a very tiny distinction, but it is different. And we think the answer is through data analysis. 
So one of the things we're starting to do is we're starting to run kind of data analysis, and it's different than just comping, and it's different than building a construction budget. It's really a full, comprehensive breakdown of the data of flip data, not just sales data. We want to know who's making money, how they're making it, how long it takes them, what did they make, and what amount of time. And then we want to study that on a big scale so we can see lots of flips and see if this is something that's supported or that one guy who flipped and made a bunch of money if that was an anomaly or if the neighborhood is just right for flipping. So we're really going towards the data route. We think a lot of people also are kind of going that route. And we think this is going to help us. I'm not going to say never lose money, but just dramatically increase the efficiency of our business model and our decision making. Greg, where can the best ever listeners learn more about that? Best ever listeners can and should go to fliptracking.com, and that's exactly what it is. We track flips. So it's exactly like it sounds, S-L-I-P, fliptracking, T-R-A-C-K-I-N-G.com. We're right now in beta, but people can go check it out just to see what's going on. We haven't had yet a commercial launch. We're still doing some other things like building spreadsheets, databases, and raising money. But it certainly works. You can go to your zip code in Maricopa County right now and see who's flipping and what they're making and how long it's taken. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Greg, for being on the show and sharing your best ever advice as well as your personal story. One of the quotes I wrote down that you said, banks sell debt. The more debt that you have, the more precarious situation you're in. It's true. It's so true. And that's why you can go to the extreme from someone who has been burned like you do, where you have zero debt, or you can go somewhere in the middle, quite literally, with that commercial real estate gentleman and his family, where they do 50% leverage and they were able to ride out the storm, although it was thin. But my gosh, when you come out the other side of things, then you're in a really good position, especially if you still have buying power during the storm and you're recognizing that, obviously. And then also the way that you shot up really quickly and then how you're approaching things now as well as your new venture with fliptracking.com so again thank you so much for being on the show really grateful we had a chance to catch up and the best ever listeners were able to benefit from our conversation hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon i really appreciate it thanks sir best ever listeners matt bowles who was a guest on episode 289 his company maverick investor group has a special report just for you on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes in real estate that investors make in the 2016 boom cycle. Get yours free at maverickinvestorgroup.com forward slash best ever. That's M-A-V-E-R-I-C-K investorgroup.com forward slash best ever.